This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at SmartWool. For more than 25 years, SmartWool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. What's up, y'all? I'm Atio. And I'm Mike. And we are on Patreon. Get on the bus, you guys. Get your bus pass. We put out an additional episode every week where we answer questions from you. Or sometimes we may just get off on a tangent about something important or cool that happened that day or a couple days ago. Yeah, it's Otiel and I catching up and you are invited. So if you head to patreon.com slash comes a time pod, uh, you can join us. Uh, you can get the bus pass. We have some incredible merch coming soon. Uh, we've got a lot of great surprises. So uh, we would love to have you guys head on over. Yes. Most of all, we want to connect with you. So uh, get on the bus, y'all. Well, 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 Mike. Uh-huh. Exactly. Comes the time. 
Mike Fenoya, O'Teal, Burbridge. Today, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I, I'm smarter. Smarter. <laughs> For sure. This is this is a biggie for me. Lord, I wish my older brother was still alive. Probably the biggest Trekkie like Star Trek head you've ever met. Uh, today, we're putting our tinfoil hats proudly on because we're going to talk about extraterrestrials. But we're talking about with the head of the Harvard Astronomy Department, Professor Avi Loeb. Because what? Who else would we talk to about it? <laughs> we sure got. Lucky. I mean, we didn't even like build up to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this came from the universe is definitely on our side. Just so you guys know, I've me and my older brother have been into this since the early, early days of Star Trek. I was born in 1964. He was born in 61. So we've been following this before there was an internet. Obviously, since then. I've been such a UFO head. All my friends know it, but there's a lot of legitimate people. You know, it's been, there's been so much propaganda about it, just like there has been about hallucinogenics, just like there has been about cannabis. It's the same thing, but I could show you presidents, uh, high ranking military officers, generals, colonels, astronauts, fighter pilots, officers with l- nuclear launch codes, scientists, even high level government officials like John Podesta, who was Obama's White House chief, White House chief of staff. And then, you know, with the recent Tic Tac uh, stuff that came out with uh, the fighter pilot, David Fravor. And Harry Reid and all this, the ATIP program. And now we have the Space Force, you know, so now it's becoming more common. But, you know, these guys have had this evidence with ground radar, air radar, reliable air witnesses, you know. Um, So it's it's great now to like at this point in time. Just our first UFO guest to be the head of the Harvard Astronomy (laughs) Department. And he's so great at like. I mean, he's not talking where you're you're going uh, cross eyed. So you're checking out, you know. Yeah, I, I had sent you uh, a, a text that I was scared to have him on because <laughs> yeah. sometimes my head hurts when people talk smart words. You know, this is a guy I swear, like from the moment and guys, you're going to know his name. Very, very soon. It's going to be, I mean, he's, he's it's some groundbreaking stuff. And the fact that he was able to have such humility and such a sense of like egolessness and talk at like conversational, you know, like what he say? He wanted to have like a jazz, like a, it was like a jazz yeah. concert. That's what he said. He goes, I just want to improvise and have fun. He, he's such a cool down to earth genius that he made something that was, is so like uncomprehendable, easily like digestible and, and, and like, Oh, okay, I'm following. And uh, I mean, right away we were like, we got to have him back as soon as possible, but man, what an unbelievable talk this was. And uh, I'm stoked for you because I know that your brother and you, this was huge in, in you know, I've always loved UFOs. I, I know that we're not the only thing, you know, there's may what, sure. stick your head in the ocean and you'll realize that we're not the only uh, life. 
but um, the fact that we're, you know, I was stoked for you for this one. Yeah, it was. Uh, I love it when your dreams come true. They surpass what your dream is, you know, yeah. like we talked about, we talked about, okay, man. I was like, look, we got our own podcast. You into UFOs? Like, are you, and you were like, yeah, let's do it. So I had some UFO researchers that I really respect in mine. Yeah. And I texted one of them and they were like, oh, he's real busy. He's finishing his book, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. You know, and then that, I forget where this thing came down the line. I just sent it to my manager, Ben. I was like, long shot any chance he might be able to get this guy he texts me but i got him i'm like what Day no later. way this is like the yeah. best Day harvard later. you can't mess with so enjoy he's not talking down to you or over your head no his students are some of the luckiest students on this planet man this guy is beautiful a beautiful heart and uh, a beautiful mind yeah, absolutely. And you know what? There's a lot more beautiful episodes, guys, coming your way very soon. 2021, the time has come. <laughs> we, we've got some whoppers, uh, as if we haven't already had whoppers. We have whoppers with cheese coming. So enjoy this. Follow us on uh, Patreon. Come hang out. Um, Patreon.com slash comes the time pod. Uh, we're on Osiris, proud members of the family. Check out all the amazing podcasts at OsirisPod.com. Thank you. Enjoy. Buckle up. Put your hat on. <laughs> Comes a time when the blind man takes your hand. Hey, everybody. Man, this is an exciting day for us. Um, <laughs> I've been a big UFO ET enthusiast since I was very young. So Avi, wow. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. This is beyond a dream come true. I got to tell you. Thanks for having me. No Absolutely. pressure, Avi. It's been a dream come true. <laughs> I know. I don't fanboy out that often with all the uh, famous people that I work with, but this is like dear to my heart. So I did, I wanted to ask you some questions um, that are kind of more general. The first one was, I was surprised at the very beginning of your book that you said you thought um, we weren't ready yet here on earth to accept the existence of ETs. Um, I thought with all the UFO news that was out now, more in the mainstream, that I was kind of surprised people were as blasé about it as they are. But maybe I'm missing something. What What was it that you, What? why do you think that? Well, when we say we, I mean uh, my colleagues in academia, uh, mostly. Uh, I think the general public uh, has a better sense. Um, and the general public is excited about this subject. The problem is really with the scientific community. You know, we have the instruments, the tools, and we are planning for having even better telescopes in the future. We have the capacity to answer, to address this question. But for some reason, my colleagues shy away from it. And that's really a puzzle to me because, you know, the public is funding science and science should not be an occupation of the elite. To me, it's a way of life. 
you know, when uh, a pipe gets clogged and I invite a plumber to fix it, I, I work together with the plumber, finding out, you know, all the clues as to what might be wrong, and then we solve it. Now, it's exactly the same way that I approach all of my scientific projects. We collect clues, evidence, and we try to figure out what's going on. You know, we learn about the world. And it's not about ourselves. You know, it's not about preserving a good image or getting more likes on Twitter. You know, it's understanding the world. And sometimes we make, make mistakes. You know, we take risks uh, in terms of interpretation of what we see and we might be wrong. But it's just like kids, you know, the way kids approach uh, learning about the world is, you know, they're not afraid of anything. They're just trying and uh, they are not attached to their ego. And unfortunately, the situation in academia right now at universities and scientific community is that people are very worried about their image. And, you know, just like basketball coaches, they often say to their team members, they say, keep your eyes on the ball, not on the audience. But unfortunately, you know, unfortunately many of my colleagues pay, pay attention to the audience more than the ball. Yeah. I, I mean, as a, as a devout, I don't know it at all. Uh, that's what I like to call myself. I'm proud to say I don't know much. And I think the people who are the most uh, intelligent are the ones that admit they don't know everything. Exactly. And it's I really that, an honor to hear you. It's phenomenal to hear you say that. Thank you. Um, I think one thing you learn from looking at the universe, you know, being an astronomer is a sense of modesty because, um, you know, we're occupying a small piece of land here on Earth. And Earth is one out of 10 to the power 20 uh, planets that are similar to it in the entire observable volume of the universe. You know, so we're such a, such a small piece of the big picture. And then we live for such a short time, you know, and uh, yeah. then we are gone. So how can you not be modest? And how can you pretend that we are unique and special and there is nobody else in the world, you know, in the universe? That to me is very arrogant. Uh, actually, my, my daughters, when they were infants, you know, they tended to think that they're at the center of the world, they're unique and special. Then they went out to the street and they found other kids. They went to kindergarten and they got a better perspective. So we need to find out that there are others like us, that we are not really special before we mature as a civilization. Do you now talk to other scientists approach you more now that that do like you know uh recently and forgive me if i mispronounce it because i'm not my hebrew isn't good <laughs> but the head of the israeli space program uh haim eshed mm -hmm. is i'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation yeah. but him coming out and saying all this stuff and i would think that now that you came out into the public maybe more scientists that have been uh, hush hush or whatever might have approached you or is it just well the, uh, okay so i have an issue with uh, haim eshed and uh, what he came out with because he just made statements without showing any evidence to support them he was ah, talking about cons a conspiracy you know in in government but he didn't show any document to yeah support it. and you know i think it's the responsibility of reporters to ask for evidence before they report about someone saying something. Because a lot of people may say that they are Napoleon, you know, yeah. and then you check their ID and you look, you know, you, you, you ask yourself, are they Napoleon? No, they are not. So if they keep arguing that, there is a special place for such people. 
And yeah. the point is, you can't just, I mean, obviously it's a free country, you can say whatever you want, but uh, there is no point in discussing people that make statements without evidence, because otherwise we'll waste our time, you know, just, you know, listening to noise, things that have no substantiation. So the thing about doing science is that it should be guided by evidence. And, you know, this object, Oumuamua, that we will discuss uh, later, you know, it did, it was weird and it showed anomalies. And that's why I wrote this book. And that's why we are speaking. Uh, the other reason that we are speaking is because my colleagues are not really uh, straightforward in discussing uh, all the possibilities. They, they don't want to discuss the possibility of extraterrestrial technologies or intelligence. And to me, it sounds just like saying, you know, I, I look at one plus one equal two, and someone is telling me you are not supposed to mention two as a possibility, you know? Yeah. yeah that, that sounds to me like inappropriate. Do you feel like they're uh, shy or apprehensive about talking about it at the risk of their ego being just proven wrong? Well, I think it's a, 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 an issue uh, as related to, to the image that they want to portray, but... Also, you know, there is a lot of literature, science fiction literature, that uh, is not really credible scientifically, that uh, uh, violates the laws of physics. Uh, and, you know, I'm not a fan of science fiction that violates the laws of physics. I cannot enjoy it because things that do not look right to me when I read it yeah. or, or look at a film like that. But uh, the point is, you know, imagine COVID-19 and, and people writing poetic books about it, like writing fiction about it and saying things that make no sense to you, would that mean that scientists should not develop a vaccine for COVID-19 using the scientific method? Mm. Of, obviously yeah. not. So if there is a subject on which there is a literature that makes no sense, that doesn't mean that the scientific community should not use its instruments, telescopes, and so forth to address this question. And that's why I don't agree with my colleagues that shy away from it. I think part of it is elevating, you know, the academic community sort of to say, you know, we don't want to engage in a discussion on a topic that is so of so great interest to the public because then we'll hear all kinds of strange, you know, ideas about it. Uh, I, I don't behave that way. At first, I don't see any separation between the public and scientific uh, work. You know, I, I think on many occasions I, I get, ex, you know, uh, exceptional insights from people that do not have a uh, professional education and uh, I enjoy this, uh, speaking with them. And, and second, I think it, we should not worry about ourselves. You know, we should think about trying to understand nature. And uh, if it happens that there are extraterrestrial civilization technologies and space junk, and we just avoid looking at it and avoid interpreting it correctly, then we, we remain ignorant. It's, it doesn't change reality. You know, it's just like uh, during the, uh, when Galileo Galilei said, you know, the earth moves around the sun based on what I see through my telescope. And philosophers said, we don't want to look through a telescope. And they put him in house arrest. And that maintained their ignorance. It didn't change the fact that the earth moves around the sun. Have you uh, been uh, aware anymore nowadays that you've kind of put this all out there of some of the 
people that have come forward before because, you know, there's presidents, there's astronauts, there's all these military. Like a few years ago, it seemed like maybe agencies just gave them permission to go ahead and talk because all of a sudden all these military guys are talking. And now we're actually starting to see some of the footage like of the Tic Tac and stuff like that. And yeah. a lot of it that I hear, you know, you have a pilot that is, you know, not someone that we're going to expect to have hallucinations or a number of pilots having a mass hallucination. They have, they can see it with their eye. They have their radar. There's ground radar. There's like, there's evidence. Right. That so there the is there. Yeah. I, <clears throat> there is a very good documentary on that. Um, the phenomenon that. Uh, yes, I know that one. Fantastic. Yeah. And, but the way I think of it is, um, you know, the scientific community, I mean, there should be funds allocated to using scientific instruments, you know, to, to study the same environment. So if, if Nimitz, you know, the, the yes. uh, found sure. evidence that looks puzzling, then we should deploy uh, scientific instruments in that area of the ocean and uh, monitor what's going on and try to figure out what is going on there. And, the point is, instead of shying away and saying that this makes no sense, like the way the scientific community does now, we should examine it. And it won't be very expensive. I mean, you can put scientific instruments. Now, the issue that scientists have is, well, to say this is, these are reports done by you know, non-scientists that may be a result of a malfunction function of the instruments that they're using or some other natural phenomena, fine. It could well be the case. Now, the reason the government needs to look into that is because these strange things that are being seen may pose a national security risk because they may belong to other nations. That's why the government should be interested in figuring out what these things are. Uh, clearly, you know, if, if they were produced by other nations, we should know about it. But uh, the scientists can check, you know, with scientific instruments, what, you know, what is really going on. And I think that should be, should be done uh, and should be funded rather than ridiculed. Uh, because obviously, if you're not ready to see wonderful things, you will never discover them. <laughs> <laughs> I think, see, I think it is funded and not ridiculed. It's just done in secret because other yeah, countries like, don't do the same thing. Like, are you aware of the Comita report that this, so I think it was in 1999 in France, and this was like done by their version of NASA. Mm -hmm. And it was generals and scientists and engineers and all these people came together to try to figure out like, what is this? It just wasn't secret. It was public. Like, I think even Great Britain has, there's a guy that's like uh, Nick Pope, I think it was his job for a while to like study UFO reports, but it wasn't a secret. It was public. It's just us that keeps it a secret. You know, well, I, I do think that the more effort needs to be put into figuring out what it is in, in, in the public eye, you know, openly, because we should, you know, figure out what's going on. Um, but um, I don't think the government is competent enough to hide a secret if it's obvious. And well, they haven't. <laughs> we know. I mean, you know, the Tic Tac video was on YouTube in 2004. Mm -hmm. It was so it was already it was already out there. The, the people that I would some of the people that I consider them more reliable mm -hmm. had also 
seen it, you know, so yeah. they haven't kept it a secret. Well, uh, okay. well, was uh, a secret. Let's forget about the past and look forward to the future. And I think yes. that we should do credible scientific, um, you know, just deploy instruments that would examine these incidences. Because nowadays, one thing that bothers me about UFO reports, you know, in uh, 50 years ago, we had the relatively crummy cameras, not, not so great. And now we have much better instrumentation, you know, that we can record things much better, get much crispier images. And uh, let's do that. Let's figure out what these things are, if they exist, you know, if they existed back then, they should still be there. For sure. Well, let's talk about it more and more because I remember when it happened and, you know, me and my brother were like, oh man, this is crazy. And uh, I'm fascinated with uh, why, I guess you don't call it an asteroid, but the, the, the whole thing of how it tumbles. And when you said a pancake and all that, and the fact that it doesn't have a trail, can you go into that? Like why? Well, first of all, let me ask this. I thought interstellar objects were more common, but you said this is the first one. Is it just the first one we've caught? Yeah. It's the first one we discovered. So we can okay. see objects because they reflect sunlight. Right. Okay, the yeah. sun is just like a, a lamppost that illuminates everything around it. And if an object big enough comes by, it reflects enough sunlight for us to see. And, uh, you know, before PANSTARS, this telescope in Hawaii that discovered Oumuamua, before it started surveying the sky, we just didn't have a, a telescope that is sufficiently sensitive to find objects like that. So. So we had the capacity to find an object like that only five years ago or so. Wow. And that's when PANSTARS started. And the goal of PANSTARS was to survey the sky for dangerous rocks, you know, bigger than the size of Oumuamua, 140 meters, that can uh, pose some risk to Earth if they collide with the Earth. You know, the dinosaurs were killed by a, a big rock uh, the size of a big city, you know, uh, right. tens of kilometers. Um, and they saw this uh, big stone approaching them. It must have been a beautiful sight, you know, to see this thing getting bigger and bigger on the sky until it smashed them. Um, so uh, we are smarter than the dinosaurs. They didn't have any science. And we want to survey the sky and figure out in advance which rock is endangering us so that we can deflect it. That's what Congress uh, wanted the astronomers to do already 16 years ago. <clears throat> so PANSTAS was established for that purpose. And uh, as it surveyed the sky in 2017, October 2017, it discovered the first object that uh, came from outside the solar system that we've seen near the Earth. And they gave it the name Oumuamua, which means uh, scout in Hawaiian, in the Hawaiian language. And uh, at first, of course, astronomers said, well, it must be just like a comet or an asteroid. It must be like the rocks that we have seen in the solar system before. And uh, to me, you know, this idea is similar to a caveman that is presented with a cell phone. You know, obviously the caveman is used to seeing rocks and would interpret the cell phone as a shiny rock. So that was the reaction at first. And, but then as time went on, astronomers found very strange properties of this, of this object. And it didn't, so they thought it may be a comet, but then it, as you said, it didn't show any cometary tail. There was no uh, trail of gas behind it. And the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around it and couldn't find any trace of gas or dust. 
So clearly it's not a comet. And um, then people say, okay, so it's just a rock without any ice on the surface that can produce the cometary tail when it evaporates close to the sun. Uh, but then uh, it, it exhibited an extra push away from the sun, the way that comets do. But there was no cometary tail to give it the rocket effect. Uh, so then the question is, what is it? It's not a comet. It's not an asteroid. Uh, it's something else. And, and uh, at that time, I decided to write a scientific paper saying that maybe the sunlight reflected off it gives it an extra push. And this is similar to a sail, you know, a sail on a boat that is being pushed by wind. You can also push a sail by reflecting light off it. And we call it a light sail. And this is a technology that we are currently developing for space exploration. The, the advantage of it is that you don't need to carry any fuel with the spacecraft and it's being pushed by light. Um, and uh, it's possible that other civilizations developed that, mastered this technology by now. And in what we are seeing is one such object passing by. Um, the reason that the light sail hypothesis makes sense in this case is because um, for, as the object was uh, tumbling, you know, it, the uh, brightness changed by a factor of 10. Um, meaning that the, the area of the object on the sky, projected on the sky, was changing by a factor of 10. So even if you take a, you know, a razor-thin piece of paper, uh, it, there is a very small chance that it will be exactly edge-on as it tumbles in the wind. And then if you get it to change its area, projected area, by a factor of 10, it means that it has a very extreme uh, geometry. And this object must have been quite... Uh, Extreme and 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 also we conclude. I mean, the, the astronomers concluded that it must be flat. It's most at the ninety percent confidence it was flat rather than cigar shaped. So something flat that that uh, uh, also at the more shiny end of all the objects we 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 have seen from the solar system, and that made it quite suspicious in my my mind. And then I argued that it may be pushed by sunlight. And that means that it's very thin, like a, like a sail, a light sail. So that was the reason I was uh, driven to this hypothesis. And that was, uh, you know, two, more than two years ago. And over the past two years, uh, other as scientists, astronomers, tried to explain it from natural sources, a natural origin. But they always had to um, imagine something that we have never seen before. Like, for example, a dust bunny you know, like we find at home, uh, except it has to be the size of a football field. So a dust bunny, the size of a football field, made of dust particles stuck together, but uh, 100, 100 times less dense than air, you know, very rarefied, porous, uh, which to me is uh, difficult to imagine something of the size of a football field tumbling around uh, every eight hours and surviving the journey through interstellar space. I didn't find that very likely. There was also a suggestion of, a frozen hydrogen iceberg, something made just of pure hydrogen, because when it evaporates, hydrogen is transparent and, and we wouldn't see the cometary tail. We've never seen hydrogen icebergs before. And moreover, we showed the, later in a paper that such a thing would get evaporated very quickly. So it's unlikely to survive the journey through interstellar space. So I would argue that, you know, natural origins is not very likely given what people suggested over the past two years. And, and therefore, we should definitely put on the table the possibility that it's artificial. 
And that second, uh, the second one that came through Borisov. Yes. Um, it did exhibit. That's the second in interstellar. Yeah, it looks exactly like a comet uh, that we have seen from the solar system. It looked like it. So then people asked me, okay, this one looks natural, and I agree. So they said, doesn't it convince you that Oumuamua was also not of natural origin? And to that I said, uh, you know, when I had the first date with my wife, she looked special to me, and I met a lot of women since then, but I still regard her as special. You know, the <laughs> fact that there are other objects that look natural doesn't mean that Oumuamua must be natural. And they had it, but it had a tail and all the other stuff. Yeah, it, it looked exactly, you know, except for small nuances, but it looked just like a comet from the solar system. So here, you know, that actually makes my point that you can yeah. tell a comet when you see it, you know, yeah. and what didn't look like now in September, 2020, just, just a few months ago, there was another object that deviated from an orbit because it had an extra push. Uh, deviated from an orbit that you would expect based on gravity alone. But that one was bound to the sun and in fact was very close to the orbit of the Earth. So, and then uh, astronomers went to the history books and found that it was a rocket booster from 1966 that was kicked out uh, for um, a lunar lander surveyor 2 mission, uh, a failed mission, but at any event, it... Um, it was a relic from a mission that we actually launched. And uh, that illustrates to me the fact that we can tell the difference between an artificial object that is hollow, doesn't show any cometary tail, and being pushed by sunlight compared to a rock. Uh, in the case of uh, this object, we know that it's artificial made because we produced it, whereas in the case of Oumuamua, we don't know who made it. And that thing was going like 200,000 miles an hour. How fast was it? Yeah, but um, most, of this, uh, most of this speed is induced by gravity uh, plus the initial speed that it was moving towards the solar system. I should say one other strange thing about Oumuamua was it was sort of parked in a public parking lot so that you can't tell which house it came from. Like if you imagine a car being in a parking lot. Yeah. Uh, so this, it, it was at rest in the so-called local standard of rest, which is the frame of reference that you get to when you average over the random motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So each star has some velocity, some speed relative to the, that local standard of rest. And Oumuamua was at rest and only one in 500 stars is so much at rest in that frame of reference, in that parking lot. And the relative speed between us and Oumuamua is simply because we, the solar system, is moving through that uh, local standard of rest at some speed. And so we bumped into it just like a giant ship that bumps into a buoy that sits at rest on, on the ocean's uh, surface. Wow. Now, th this this discovery and this hypothesis obviously leads to, you know, where did it originate from? Right. Which and, is uh, you know, I can only mention possibilities and uh, also about the, the possible purpose of this. But we have not we don't have enough data or evidence to, to guide us. And of course, my goal is that, you know, we should survey the sky 
and in the future find more objects that look like it and learn more about them. You know, it's just like walking on the beach and you see mostly seashells that are naturally produced, but every now and then you get to see a plastic bottle that was artificially made and, and then you can look for a message in a bottle. So that would be the idea. So among the possibilities of where it came from, you know, because it was at rest in that local standard of rest, it could be one member of a grid of objects that fills up space and serves for navigation, you know, just like road posts that you have a grid of such things. And then if you navigate through interstellar space, you know where you are relative to each of them. Uh, another possibility is that it could be a relay station for communication. You know, we, uh, we have that on Earth where you don't need a very powerful beacon, but basically you have relay stations that transmit the signal that you're sending from one point to another, and then it gets a large, through a larger distance. Um, and so it could be something like that. And it could also be a probe in principle that tries to figure out, you know, whether there are civilizations in the habitable zone of the sun or not. It could be something like that. But, um, I think it's unlikely. I think, um, I don't think that we are of particular interest. You know, I don't think that we are very intelligent. If you open the yes. morning newspaper, you know, you, yes. you realize you can't avoid the, the thing, the thought that, you know, we are wasting so much uh, energy and, and, and money and time on, on fighting each other. And, you know, that, that is not a smart thing to do. You know, we should work together. We should be kind to each other. We should, you know, we live for such a short time. Why, why, why not work together? You know, like this makes no sense to me. Uh, so clearly we are not, I would not say that we are the sharpest cookie in the jar that you can imagine, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and also, you know, if you imagine from, you know, if you open a recipe books, uh, a recipe book for, for cakes, uh, you can start from the same ingredients like flour and sugar and other things and make very different cakes depending on how you put them together. Man. So, you know, on the early earth, there were these chemical ingredients. Uh, there was a soup of chemicals that ended up making uh, by random processes, making up uh, all the life forms that we see today. But I have no doubt that if you mix these uh, these chemicals differently, you could get a better outcome, a cake that tastes better, you know, than, than we are. And uh, <laughs> I think out of modesty, I would say that, you know, we're not the smartest kid on the block. We're not a priority. <laughs> no, no. It, I, I had the opportunity to visit the observatory on the big island of Hawaii. Uh-huh. at Volcanoes National Park and, and, and to be able to look up through those telescopes and, and, and just even no light pollution, just to be able to look up from that tiny little Island floating in the Pacific. The first thing that crosses your mind is I, I have no idea. And I love how much I don't know. Like, it's just how vast and amazing it is out there. The fact that anyone could, could have an idea that they like know it all is just so ridiculous when you figure how vast and, ex- and expansive it is. <laughs> And it keeps growing by the day. Uh, you know, I've, I've tried to make the analogy that like earth is like a rest stop in Jersey on like the cross country road trip 
of the universe, you know, like well, who wants to uh, visit uh, here? You know, the, the, the analogy I make is, uh, you know, there are 10 to the power 20 planets like the earth in the observable volume of the universe. And these are more than the number of grains of sand on yeah. all beaches on earth. And imagine, you know, all these emperors and kings that conquered a piece of land on earth and were very proud of themselves, usually, you know, alpha males, white alpha. And these guys, you know, are no different than an ant that hugs a single grain of sand on the landscape of a huge beach. It's ridiculous to be proud of yourself, you know, being on earth. And, uh, you know, it just gives you a better perspective about ourselves uh, to, to think about the universe and also that we are short lived. You know, we live for so, such a short time relative to the age of the universe that we, you know, let's focus on substance and just not be too proud of ourselves. You know, I, I just hate that uh, ambition of people to show off and to, you know, make their image look great and, uh, get more likes on Twitter. I have no footprint on, on social media whatsoever. I have no, no, nothing. I think I might fall into that pocket of folks who are extremely interested, extremely curious, but have zero attention span. And you make learning, um, like you have a way and I don't know, I'd like to know if you practiced or if this is just natural from your, you know, you have the God given gift of making things understandable, but you know, science can be incredibly overwhelming, you know? Well, it's simply because uh, I came from a background that is um, not a traditional background for getting to become a Harvard professor and a chair of the astronomy department at Harvard. You know, it's, I can, I grew up on a farm and I used to collect eggs every afternoon I was interested mostly in philosophy. And then uh, in Israel, I grew up in Israel and uh, there is an obligatory military service and that brought me into physics because I, I wanted to do intellectual work, but that was the only thing uh, that uh, would benefit the, the, the security of the country. And so I was allowed to do that and finished my, my PhD in physics uh, at age 24. And, and then I was offered a position at Princeton uh, for five years if I were to switch to astrophysics. So one thing led to another, but you know, my roots are actually being on a farm and uh, interested in philosophy and I'm very different than my colleagues. So, uh, and, and the other thing is, you know, I don't, I, I since I grew up in, in a farm, you know, I, I care about nature much more than about people. You know, I really enjoy being alone. Uh, you know, this lockdown over the past 10 months or so, as far as I'm concerned, was was really um, a time for me to to create much more than usual. You know, I, I published twice as many papers, uh, twice as many commentaries, and I jog every morning uh, at 5 a.m. and and uh, enjoy you know ducks and rabbits and 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 birds uh, in yeah. the woods where I go. And um, you know, I don't really care about what other people say. I, I really. You know, what I would like to do as a scientist is just figure out what what the world is. And, you know, and, and we are, you know, I'm willing to take risks and make mistakes. That's part of the process. And we should be humble. I mean, it's not about getting awards and recognition. And it, it, the scientific work is about figuring out what what the world is. Uh, how do you, I remember you uh, in your book, there was a project, I think it was Yuri. Is it Yuri Milner yes. that you were trying to actually get to 
the closest inhabitable planet. Can you talk about that a little bit? That's yeah, so, so in May 2015, a black limousine uh, parked uh, next to the building of the Center for Astrophysics at uh, Harvard University. And uh, out of it came uh, Yuri Milner and his uh, uh, assistant uh, at the time, uh, also now, uh, uh, Pete Warden, that is the director of the Breakthrough Initiatives. And, and Yuri came to my office and uh, sat down and said, um, Avi, um, I would like to tell you about uh, the initiatives, the Berkeley initiatives, and one of them is to visit the nearest uh, star in our lifetime. That's, you know, that's my ambition. Would you be willing to look into that and see if there is any technology that can allow us to do that? And, you know, the issue is really that the nearest star is four and a quarter light years away. So it means that it takes light uh, four and a quarter years to get from that star, Proxima Centauri, to us. So if there is a civilization there, and actually there is a planet in the habitable zone around that star, so if it, ha- if it hosts a civilization, they will only next month, they would hear about the results of the 2016 elections because the signal propagates at the speed of light and didn't reach there yet. So you realize it takes more than four years for light to go from one star to another. Obviously, if you want to get there in our lifetime, let's say in 20 years, you, you need to build a spacecraft that moves at a fraction of the speed of light, maybe at a fifth of the speed of light, so that it takes two decades to get there. And that is quite uh, a challenge. And so Yuri said, would you mind, would you be interested in leading this project? And I said, uh, sure, I'll, I'll be glad to look into that. And then... Um, uh, six, you know, for six months, I, I looked at various possi- possible technologies that can allow that to, with my students and postdocs. And then I was in Israel in December um, 2015, and I get a phone call on my cell on Friday morning when I'm about to go on a vacation with my just a weekend with my family to uh, a goat farm in the southern part of Israel, the Negev. And uh, uh, on the phone was uh, Pete Warden saying, Yuri would like you to report back whether, you know, what do you recommend? Is it possible to visit the nearest star? And I said, thank you very much. I'll I'll prepare something. But uh, I had to prepare it the same, you know, day or the day after. And and, uh, we we went to that goat farm and uh, there was no internet connectivity except for the office. So the following morning at 6 a.m., I sit with my back to the office of that goat farm, looking at goats that were just born, you know, around, running around, and contemplating the details of the first visit to the nearest star. So that was very surreal uh, for me. And two two weeks later, I presented this plan uh, in Yuri's home, and uh, he was very excited. So the idea was to use a light sail, which is the only way to get to a fraction of the speed of light, because you are pushing a spacecraft with light. What else can give you that kind of a propulsion? You know, only light can push you close to the speed of light, because anything else would not be able to chase uh, the the spacecraft. So um, we presented the, the concept of a very powerful laser beam focused on a light sail that has roughly the size of a person, you know, and uh, pushing it over a few minutes uh, across a distance that is five times the distance to the moon uh, to a fraction of the speed of light. And uh, that requires the payload 
and the spacecraft to weigh of order uh, a gram or a few grams, uh, which which is potentially possible. You can make a, a light sail that is lightweight and um, and also equip it with a camera, navigation device, communication device of the type that you find in in a cell phone today. So uh, that was the concept, and we announced it with uh, Stephen Hawking also. Uh, uh, in New York City the following April, in April 2016, after several months of back and forth and many hours of discussion of the challenges and whether they are showstoppers, and we presented it, and that, that is called Starshot. That's the project. And I should say, when I went to New York City, my wife had to bring the car for an oil change, and um, she went um, uh, brought the car, and then the, the uh, technician um, you know, asked her, why isn't your husband bringing the car? And she said, well, he's in New York City announcing this uh, project Starshot. And the technician said, wow, that's amazing. You know, I, I, I am so excited about this project. I heard about it uh, on the news and uh, it's remarkable. And, uh, and to me, that illustrated the, the interest of the public in something exciting, you know, something to look for. Yeah. Uh, there was the Apollo mission that a lot of, a lot of people got excited by many, you know, like 50 years ago. And, um, and it's about time for us to have something else. Uh, and going to the stars is, is a possibility, you know, it, it's something that excites the public and, uh, we can pursue, uh, we can pr develop that technology. I love the advice. This one YouTube I saw you on and the kids asked you a question about, you know, how should we approach because we're into all this stuff and but we're coming up through the same academic, you know, uh, structure. And you said, my advice to you is to ignore the adults in the room. <laughs> that was, that was phenomenal. Right. No, it reminded me of a quote that I heard, and I'm not sure if it was you or not, but it said that science advances one death at a time. Like, you know, the old, <laughs> was that you that said that? Or? No, no, I, I would never talk about death as, as, as a plus, but, but uh, I was asked by the uh, Harvard the newspaper called the, the Harvard Gazette, you know, that's the Pravda, you know, like the official mm -hmm. newspaper of Harvard, just like Pravda is in, in, in Russia. And, um, and uh, I was asked, what is the one thing you would change in the world? Which, you know, is a very general question. And I, I replied, I wrote an essay about it, is saying that I would like my colleagues to behave more like kids. Uh, because as kids, we are all curious about the world. We are taking risks. Uh, and we are not so attached to our egos, you know, and I see that as a big problem right now in science that people chase honors and try to preserve a very um, high level image of themselves. And, you know, one aspect of that is they do intellectual gymnastics. They just try to demonstrate that they are smart, but science is not about that. It's not about ourselves. It's trying to figure out nature. And it doesn't need to be a very sophisticated idea as long as it applies to nature, you know, as long as it describes it. So I, th I see that as a distraction, actually, the, the fact that uh, much of the academic activity is geared towards uh, gymnast intellectual gymnastics and that, that sometimes the public doesn't care about and very often it doesn't deal with reality because you know people work on subjects that have no experimental evidence whatsoever 
and they are very popular in theoretical physics, like extra dimensions or the multiverse, you know, things like that for which we have no evidence, no clue. And large communities of physicists work on these things. They get, they give each other awards and they feel very proud of themselves, but it's really not uh, the way that physics should, should, should be guided. Uh, we, we are supposed to be guided by evidence because many times we are wrong. So it's a learning experience. We should correct ourselves, you know, just like a GPS system on a car. Every now and then it says recalculating. So we should do recalculating of our prejudice, of our notion. Whenever we see evidence that, that looks anomalous, that doesn't agree with what we expected, just like Oumuamua. So in my book, I actually use the example of Oumuamua to, to, to illustrate this problem that we have right now in the scientific culture. Well, they're being unscientific by closing off a whole, you know, it's like, uh, I don't see how that's scientific. You're supposed to entertain all the possibilities. So right. it, it's, uh, it's contradictory. And you it, know, is, it's- it is contradictory to the nature of, of science, which is supposed to figure out the truth, right? Uh, but it is not contradictory to the nature of scientists that want to prove that they are smart and want to improve their image. So if you are driven by the number of likes on Twitter, if you are driven by getting approval from your colleagues yeah. and you, you know you want to demonstrate how smart you are, you just do intellectual gymnastics. You you know you do, do all kinds of tricks and all kinds of things that others cannot do and you show that that you are very smart. But that may have nothing to do with reality because sometimes you know the explanation is really simple the idea does not require very sophisticated math and um, it's a completely different uh, you know path that you need to take if you are focused on the ball rather than the audience and, and, and just like you said, if you look in a recipe book or you look at ingredients, some of your colleagues and some other scientists recipe may have been, you know, uh, parents or some type of like, you know, force that that forced them to, you know, want those accolades where you were on a farm looking right. at animals, looking up at the sky, figuring it out for yourself, reading philosophy. So it's amazing that you brought this with you on your journey, which makes you light years ahead, no pun intended, of some colleagues when it comes to not holding on to prejudice? Well, the only reason that we are talking is because my colleagues are not following what I regard as common sense. You know, I don't see that what I'm doing is anything special or merits uh, special attention. If everyone else around me would adapt to this, these principles, you know, that, that should be the guide, the guiding light of, of, of scientific inquiry. You know, um, if everyone else would agree to that, then I wouldn't be any, anything special and we wouldn't be speaking because everyone would do the same thing. But uh, unfortunately it's not the case. And uh, you know, by putting blinders, on our view, then we are missing part of reality. And that, I think that's a pity. And and especially on a subject like, are we alone? You know, that the public is so curious about, um, and the public funds science. So I don't understand how is it possible? How, how do scientists dare to shy away from this subject? If they have the instrumentation to address it, you know, it's just inappropriate. I love how inclusive you are of the rest of us that are not scientists. And I think like Borisov, the second interstellar comment, 
that they found that guy was an amateur astronomer, astronomer right? right? He was an amateur astronomer. By the way, I don't think um, of myself as any different from any other you know, person. I don't think science is an occupation of the elite. Let's put it this way. I think it's yeah. a way of life. It's a way of thinking about the world, trying to figure out what it is. And it has to start with a sense of modesty because we have to admit that we, you know, we're sometimes wrong. You can't be always, if you want to be always right, then you are very boring because you are just repeating things that are already known. Or but if liar. you work at the frontier <laughs> and you're looking for th new things, then you're wrong sometimes. You know, Einstein at the end of his career uh, in the 1930s, he made, and he was supposed to be the wisest, uh, you know, person around and also at the end of his career. So he had a lot of experience. He wrote three papers that were completely wrong. He was saying black holes don't exist. He was saying gravitational waves do not exist. And he was saying quantum mechanics doesn't have spooky action at a distance. And he was wrong on all three. And in 2015, we discovered gravitational waves and they, they have proven that black holes exist. They came from a collision of two black holes. And the spooky action at a distance does exist based on the latest experiments. So Einstein was wrong, but that's nothing, you know, he should not be blamed, of course, because he was working at the frontier. And you are often wrong when you, so, but that's not a problem because it's a learning experience. So let's start from, by being modest and not pretending to know everything. You know, the scientific community says, we should never come to the public with any statement unless a, uh, unless a big enough group of, of us agree on it, and then we come forward, because otherwise the public will never believe us when we talk about global warming, for example. But my point is completely the opposite. I say exactly. the public will believe the scientists when the public sees how the sausages are made, you know, how the process is done. Uh, most of the time, we are not sure. You know, we have incomplete evidence. And when we come out with the same conclusion, then it means that the evidence is clear. And then the public will trust us. So why hide from the public this intermediate yeah. phase when we are not sure? Let's show the process as it is. Let's be honest, straightforward, transparent. Let's also discuss subjects that the public is interested in, like extraterrestrial uh, intelligence. Yeah. What's the problem with doing that? I just don't, I cannot see it. Thank God you were so interested in philosophy first. <laughs> Lucky for all the rest of us. Yes. Hey, before we let you go, we got to ask about our, our tech. Uh, Eric told us, and I didn't know about it, but apparently just yesterday we watched a galaxy die or expire or something. What's up with that? Oh, no, that's nothing really. I mean, they try to make it dramatic, but basically what happens is when um, a galaxy forms, you make stars out of the gas that makes it. So the gas cools and fragments into stars and sometimes even feeds a black hole at the center of the galaxy. And as a result of these processes, uh, there is a lot of energy being released and that pushes out some gas. And, uh, you know, so very often it's just like a baby that is being fed and then the baby becomes so energetic that it clears the food off the table. And so uh, that's what they mean by seeing the food being thrown out of the table from that galaxy, you know? And so it's, you know, okay. So we've seen a very energetic baby throwing the food off the table and that's what it is. You know? <laughs> so where can we, uh, please tell everybody the name of your book, 
where we can yeah. is it out yet so the name of the book is extraterrestrial uh it's uh, available on amazon uh, for pre-order on or any other place that sells books and it will come out uh, officially on the 26th of January. It's already uh, uh, ranked as bestseller in some categories, and there is a lot of interest. And I should tell you, I was invited for about 100 uh, podcasts by now, and, and there were six um, filmmakers and producers from Hollywood that contacted me over the past few days. Um, that was a surprise that there was so much attention. I just told my, my literary agent that if there is a film made out of it, out of the book, uh, I want Brad Pitt to pay. <laughs> you want Brad Pitt to play the, to play a mua mua. <laughs> um, I, you know, you, you bring such an unbelievable, like it seems like, we're drawn to, and guests are drawn to us in, in this, we have this overarching common sense is like the mantra of the podcast, mm -hmm. whether we're talking to a comedian, yourself, uh, a therapist, um, where we are in the, in, in the world's history and where we are from, you know, common sense and, and, and vulnerability and transparency and all that. You said quite a bit, you know, we've talked about extraterrestrial life before you go, any thoughts on life here on earth and what we need to do to make it a little better? <laughs> <laughs> You're the smartest person we've had. So <laughs> my, my message is really simple. Uh, be modest, be kind to other people because you are not superior. You are never superior. All the differences between us as people are really minuscule. You know, they're really, uh, I cannot understand how people can feel superior to relative to each other when we are all, you know, Oscar Wilde said, we are all in the gutters, but some of us are looking at the stars. That gives you a better perspective, you know? Yeah. So that's uh, the first thing I would say. Uh, and second, just be genuine, authentic, and be curious about the world and not so much think about yourself, you know, like, uh, you know, science is all about a dialogue with nature. It's not a monologue. It's not us telling nature what's, what it's supposed to be. It's, it's figuring out based on the evidence that we get what it is. So, you know, it comes together with modesty. You are not supposed to know everything until nature tells you what, what, what it's like. That's excellent. We know you have to go. Would you ever consider coming back and uh, talking? I know you're going to be very busy making a movie with Brad Pitt, but we, we, uh, I would like to talk about philosophy and life on the farm. If you ever uh, have sure, time. I'd be delighted. I had a great time, uh, but I will condition it. Uh, I would like to hear Otil play uh, a segment. <laughs> oh, well, you, I, you know, I could. Uh, I'll, I'll grab. I'll grab my banjo and play us out, Otil. I'll, I'll have. I'll have something. Well, I can't do it right now because it's. I have my only. Yeah, my sure I would enjoy that much more than listening to myself speaking. <laughs> Why don't? Well, no, we, I we, would. You should do it for me, where Otil, you play to. <laughs> Avi speaking. Now that <laughs> is a podcast I'll listen to. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you so much, so much and stay safe and thank congratulations. You. Thank you for inviting me. Anytime. Bye-bye. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? 
problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.